Morrison's parliament unsafe for women, living standards back to 2018 levels, Albo fires up, and the good news is about Jaguars. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and it is another glorious month of over a thousand downloads a day for our great and glorious show. And joining <laughs> me today from sunny and occasionally rainy Sydney is Australia's best-selling author of QAnon and On, my lovely partner, Van Badham. How are you, Van? Well, you can hear the birds in the background. It's a very Sydney afternoon, meaning that it is both humid and about to rain. <laughs> well, I tell you who it's been raining for today and this week and all the last couple of weeks really is Scott Morrison. Van, so Scott Morrison, the last two sitting weeks of the parliament, finally has accepted a report from Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, a report that has been long promised on the culture and the behaviours within the parliament. And frankly, it's a damning indictment of how the Morrison government runs our nation's capital. Should I read out some statistics? Should Please I read go out for some it. statistics? Um, the Jenkins report found one in three people working in Morrison's parliament had experienced some kind of sexual harassment. One in three in the parliament building. Uh, 51% have experienced sexual harassment or bullying and 40% of women have experienced sexual harassment. The the Jenkins report has had to make 28 recommendations. One of my favourite statistics was that the Jenkins report contains 222 references to the consumption of alcohol in Parliament House um, with the intimation that this may indeed be a contributing factor towards the culture there. It's absolutely damning this report it is so it's such a horrendous indictment of the culture of parliament house and also an indictment of morrison's lack of leadership given the fact that you know mr mr i'm so christian goody goody has been presiding over a parliament where sexual harassment and the you know mistreatment of women is rife well this is the this is one of the things that came out isn't it that almost uh, three quarters of people who work in parliament have seen or are aware of sexual harassment. Uh, the question has been put to a number of coalition uh, senators, and I noticed Holly Hughes said that she's not aware of it, has never been aware of it, has never seen or heard of it. Morrison himself claims to have never seen or heard of it. Morrison, it's important to remember, Morrison has been a minister in parliament since the coalition became government in 2013. He's one of only three, I think, people who've been in cabinet the whole time. You know, he has spent more time in that building than many people will have spent there across their entire careers. Uh, and the culture really is set by the government. I mean, he's tried in the last day or so to really spin this as a it's an all-parties problem, and I've no doubt that there are issues across all parties. But I think if we were to break down the uh, proportion by party, we would find that it's, an all par- it's a problem for all parties but a problem for a couple of parties more than others. Now, I don't want to just hammer Morrison on this. It is a cultural problem, so much so that 
when Jackie Lambie was give, was asking a question in the Senate Question Time yesterday, a a barking noise was heard. Uh, barking and growling, Ben. Barking and growling barking noise was growling. heard by both uh, a Greens and Labor senator, uh, Sarah Hanson Young and Penny Wong. And while nobody apologised for the growling and barking noises, a Victorian Liberal senator did later apologise for interjecting while Jackie Lambie was asking her question. And he apologised I mean, this- people thought he said, no, because there was more to this. Samantha Maiden wrote up the story. Uh, he apologised if anybody thought he was barking and growling. He was interjecting and he was genuinely sorry for that. And maybe people just thought he was barking and growling because he had a mask on. Like it it just boggles the mind that that culturally is allowed to get away with that, you know, that the people are, we know people drink in Parliament House. You know, you and I have been in Parliament House and seen people consuming alcohol. There have been events there are events constantly in Parliament House where alcohol is consumed. It's not secret. It's not. Uh, it's not unknown. Uh, but the translation seems to be in this report that really there are many people, MPs and senators in particular, it would seem, who treat this as a bit of a frat house, drinking, speaking over women, groping people. Unwanted sexual advances, bullying. Shoving tongues down throats, touching up, derogatory comments, leering at women in the hallways. There was a, a New York Times article which is just nationally embarrassing. And this is what I really love about the Morrison government. Every story the rest of the world hears about Australia is embarrassing, whether it's Morrison lying to Macron or lying to the Americans and now presiding over a parliament where women are constantly bullied and harassed. A friend of mine who's a journalist from the UK, um, he and I were having some witty banter yesterday and I was like, oh, how are things going on the plague islands? And he was like, oh, yes, well, hundreds of thousands of people have died. And he wrote back saying, how is it going in, in the land of harassment? And I was like, that's the dominant story out of Australia, isn't it? The land of harassment. How wonderful. So, well, yeah, so this New York Times piece is just absolutely chilling and documents some of the specific incidents that have taken place in the Parliament House and just the, the level of detail and just how excruciatingly awful it is there. It's It's hard. Like, it's actually hard to process it. And you can, I mean... There's a, a mixture of political loyalty and just willful fantasy that goes on in denials like Holly Hughes's. Like I'm sure she hasn't seen anything because I think part of her brain would not want to see it um, for reasons that we know that there are members of the Liberal Party who behave this way and members of the National Party who believe this way. We know this because there are complaints. <laughs> there are documented complaints. Yeah. And if they're on your side, you don't want to see it. Like I, I understand that. I get that, but that just because you are not acknowledging that it's happening, Holly, doesn't mean it is not true. And I, and one of the things that really strikes me, Van, is that while all of the statistics are awful and the stories that are put in the report are, are horrendous, it it actually is indicative of a broader problem, right? Because it's not just in our Parliament House where the Morrison government has failed to make workplaces safe for women. There, there's been 
the Human Rights Commission did a report very early on uh, in the life of the Morrison government that they sat on for well over a year uh, called the Respect at Work Report. And it made 55 recommendations about how to improve workplace safety, workplace culture, how to make sure that women would be safe at work uh, and that overall as a society, things got better, right? And and it's interesting because Australian unions have done quite a lot of work on this and they've got to the point where, you know, they've campaigned and one in 10 workplaces now has family and domestic violence leave. Um, but Australian unions have done some research. It says... 30% of workers under 24 have experienced sexual harassment and that more than a quarter of workers in retail and hospitality have experienced sexual harassment and that 64% of women have experienced some form of sexual harassment in their working lives. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised this is news to people. I mean, I, I was sexually harassed at work when I was a special education assistant. Like I was working in a school in London for kids with emotional behavioural disorders, like kids who'd usually been thrown out of their other school for playing up and the the point of the school I was at was trying to work out what was actually causing the behaviour. And one of the male teachers was leering at me when we were in a room full of these kids, like we are in a room full of 14-year-olds, and this male teacher made comments about how he could see up my skirt and sort of intimated that he'd like to see more. You know what I mean? And that yeah. was... And it was, I mean, and I was terrified. I mean, I was young, I was broke, I was a foreigner in a different country. I really needed the job. And there was a very senior teacher, a teacher in a room full of children making comments about staring up my skirt. When I worked in hospo, oh my Lord, like it was constant. Like sexual harassment is literally part of the job. And which is outrageous that people think that they that because you serve them drinks, you're somehow obliged to engage with their harassment of you. Constantly having my body assessed, the the bodies of the other women who worked there were obsessed. These men who would hit on us constantly, who would offer us money for various sexual acts over the bar while we were like, you know, washing glasses and yeah. things and make offers like that. It was horrendous. One night, I, I mean, I tell this story a lot and I won't go into all the details, but one night it got so bad, I found one of the other girls sobbing behind the bar and she was like, seriously, if one of those men touch me again, one of those patrons, I will quit my job. And I was like, yeah, I'm I'm done. And so I pretended there was a sewerage leak and flicked the lights on and off and said, look, I'm really sorry, everybody, but a toilet has exploded. You all have to go home now. Like it's a safety risk. And I closed the bar. And, you know, I probably could have lost my job, but it was better than losing my dignity and I had to stand up for this woman who I worked with. It was just so bad. And they had been treating her like a piece of meat. Like they had some women who were with them. This is the most disgusting thing that ever happened to me at work. These guys, and they were all venture capitalists, like they were loaded, this is in London, really expensive kind of joint. Um, They had called in these women, friends of theirs, who turned up all very nicely dressed and there was plenty of money being spent. And these women would drop their like lipsticks and things on the ground and expect us, the staff, to pick them up. And while we were crawling around on the ground of this bar collecting their stuff, they would rate our legs and our bums and things like that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
Yep. That's, and, you know, and I've heard worse. I've yeah. heard infinitely worse stories. And I've it, heard women who work in retail who um, there are customers who come in and perform acts of self-delight in the change rooms and try and engineer circumstances where the women have to watch. And, like, people do absolutely disgusting, harassing things because people think if you work, you work for them, you know. And, and it, it's not different in Parliament House. It is no. not different. And, and I think that's the bit that shocks people is that, you know, we like to think our elected officials have a higher standard, right? And they don't. And it's, and it, and Kate Jenkins' report goes into the insecurity element too, right? That, that the people who have had these experiences are generally are more often on short-term contracts or part-time or uh, have some other form of job insecurity. And that's what this research shows out too. There's research that shows women are almost twice as likely to be in part-time work and more than a quarter of women are in casual jobs with no leave. And if you're in that kind of insecurity, like your friend behind the bar effectively hiding you know, you don't feel empowered to to stand up. You're not empowered. In fact, you're disempowered, and your your dignity is stripped away. And obviously, there are predators in our community who who, for whatever reason, believe it's okay because it's not okay. It's not okay, but believe it's okay, and all too often get away with it. And you know, I think this. This work that the Australian unions have been doing on this uh, respected work, because that was 55 recommendations. Like Kate Jenkins' report yesterday has another 28, but there's a whole bunch of recommendations from the respected work report that Morrison hasn't implemented um, and said he won't implement. Stuff like putting a, putting a duty on the employer to prevent sexual harassment at work. You know, I think most people would think that that, is a responsibility of the employer that if you see someone sexually harassing someone else in the workplace, you have a responsibility to stop it. That that duty doesn't exist currently. Um, putting uh, sexual harassment in the Fair Work Act and putting in a complaints process so that there's actually teeth to it. Morrison might do that. And giving Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, the, the power to initiate an inquiry into sexual harassment or discrimination. So she doesn't have to wait to be told by Morrison, I want you to go and investigate this. She can go, you know what? This looks like a problem. I'm the sex discrimination commissioner. I'm going to go and investigate it. Like these are basic things that you would think if you were seriously going to address these issues, not just in Parliament House, but in our pubs and in our clubs, in our restaurants, in our cafes, in our factory floors, in our office buildings, wherever these things are happening because they're happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. You would put these powers in place. You would say the employer does have responsibility. The commissioner can go and investigate. There, there are teeth behind this and there are real punishments. But he's not going to do that. He said he's not going to do that. Uh, instead, he's got this new report and, you know, maybe there'll be an office within the parliament so that if it happens in parliament, maybe you can get some recourse there they might do something about some less alcohol. Like it's just a, a lack of leadership on what is a very broad social problem that he's trying to condense into a very small part of our overall society 
and suggest that actually all he's got to do is tighten up the culture within Parliament House and the problem will go away. Well, but, they, but have you heard uh, how they're going to change the culture? So they had Jane Hume, who's the Minister for Destroying Superannuation, who was on um, on the ABC earlier today, who was saying that they're going to change the culture but that's not going to involve quotas for women in the Liberal Party. Oh, right. Because that's like, one of the things quotas, that... Quotas aren't the answer. We've got to change the culture. And it's like, but you have now been saying that for 30 years and your culture clearly has not changed. We have tangible hard data about how the culture has not changed. We have photographs of Barnaby Joyce leering at a young woman that appeared on the front page of several newspapers and the culture has not changed. You know, but we have also- the rejection of respect at work and the culture has not changed. And so quotas, which it, there are quotas for um, in the in the coalition for National Party representatives, yep. there are quotas in the hierarchy of the Liberal Party for women to take over like administri- like the the executive positions within the party, there are quotas there. You have people like Judith Turth who have been campaigning for quotas in the Liberal Party going, I would prefer not to use them but nothing else is working. And then you have this boys' club mentality. In the New York Times article, that one of they quoted that one of the one of the people who had responded and given um, evidence for the report said that it's just like being on a school camp that's full of these like privileged boys who think that they can, you know, flick everybody's bra strap and treat women like dirt and get away with it and that you're trapped in a building with those people. And realistically, and, ben, and you and I have seen your that. employer. And they're yeah, your and, employer. And you have no, you have, like, if you have a problem with your boss in Parliament House, do you know who you report it to? Your, your boss. boss. <laughs> like, it's amazing. So there's no, it, Parliament House is unusual. There's an act what, though, called the, I, the MOPS Act or the MOBS Act, MOPS, which means yeah, it's yeah. the only workplace in Australia where there is literally no transparency or accountability around hiring and firing and there's no human resources. You have no one to complain to <laughs> well, if your boss was, is treating you like garbage. I was going to say, Van, I think, you know, this is a good time for us to tell people to join their union, right? Yeah. Because, you know, I've, I've been I've been a political staffer and a union member, um, you know, I've been a union member in I think every job I've ever had, uh, including stacking shelves at, at, you know, 15. But, you know, join your union it because unions take this seriously. Like if there's one group of people who are actually doing the work on this, it's unions. It's they true. Are, they are actually campaigning workplace by workplace. You know, over the course of the last 10 years, family domestic violence leave has become much, much more prevalent as a right for people in the workplace because unions said, well, if the government won't deliver this, we're going to go out and win it workplace by workplace. And it's the same thing when it comes to harassment and bullying. Unions are the ones who stand up for people. And as much as the Morrison government and some corporate executives like to try and suggest that, you know, the opposite is true, if you're being bullied and harassed, it's by somebody who has more power than you, and the way to balance that up is to be part of your union. So join australianunions.org.au slash wow, australianunions.org.au slash wow, uh, and and join up. And if you're in a heavily masculinized industry or a feminized industry, it doesn't matter. This can happen anywhere, and being part of your union means that you're not alone, even if, even if like, you know, the, the good comrades of the parliamentary staffer uh, core, you know, 
the only place you can turn to is your union, frankly. Yeah, uh, it is. It's the only place you can turn to. Because let's face it, if you were a staffer in Parliament and this nonsense went on and you went to your union and they knew about it, I have a feeling action would happen lickety-quit, don't you? Yeah, and the CPSU, which is the Commonwealth Public Sector Union who represents these workers, has come out very strongly and said, we have been saying these things for a long time. There is nothing new in this. Uh, These issues reflect what we have been saying. These recommendations reflect what we have been saying needs to happen. Can we please get on and do it? You know, listen to the voice of the workers and we can actually fix some of these problems. It's this sort of bizarre thing where maybe the people who are doing the work have some concept about how it's done and how it can be done better. Um, Look, this is an issue that's not going to go away despite Morrison's wish that it would because it is so endemic across the entirety of Australian society and our economy. Uh, And frankly, I think the attempts to kind of ring fence it as a problem in parliament are just an attempt to ignore what is a much broader systemic problem that Morrison you know, for all of his Christian values, so-called Christian values, is just not going to do anything about. So join your union and get rid of the Morrison government is probably the other message I'd leave. Oh, look, (laughs) you know, somebody made this point. This has happened on his, what, like, you know, it's one thing for him to go, oh, well, you know, this has always been a problem. And, oh, it's terrible. It's, oh, isn't it really terrible? It's a problem for all of us. And all of us really need to look internally and ask, you know, what are we doing? And it's the typical Morrison, don't take responsibility. I don't hold a hose, mate. Like it's that, that attitude that absolutely defines him. But, it, the point is that, yes, this is we know that there's been a culture of sexism in that place for years. That's why the Labor Party brought in quotas. Like that's how the argument inside the Labor yeah. Party was won decades ago that said this is only going to change if there is a structural change that allows a different culture to develop. And you and I both know in the Labor Party sexist behaviour goes down. How well do you think sexist behaviour goes down, Ben? Oh, well, it's completely stamped upon. Like it's just not, um, it's not tolerated. And when it gets, you know, when it gets reported, it gets dealt with. That's the the key. Um, yeah, look, I think there's going to be lots more on this. Uh, there's a couple more stories that I, I want us to try and get to uh, as well. Um, so the GDP figures have come out, Van. And before we get into oh, no, elbow totally telling up you, Morrison. Ben. It's like talking about st- the strategic oil reserves. It's like Ben's top 10 fun yeah. things. Tell us about the GDP figures, my darling. So GDP shrank 1.9% in the September quarter, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the third biggest economic downturn on record in Australia. Uh, household it spending like is down kind of 4.9%. It's a a huge deal. deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. The Morrison government is trying to, you know, pick cherry pick bits of data that kind of position it. Oh, but it's not as bad as the downturn we had at the start of the pandemic. It's like, yeah, okay. So you're right. Third biggest is not the biggest. Congratulations. You you understand the difference between one and three. Now, if you could apply that thinking to the broader economy, maybe we wouldn't be in this hole um, because we are in a hole. The Australian economy is smaller than when the pandemic started 
and GDP per capita, that is the amount of money, the wealth we have per person, is the same as it was in March 2018. March 2018. That's three so and a half backwards. years ago. We are going backwards. We are going a long way backwards. Ben, do you think this is why Labor is suddenly outpolling the Liberals on good economic management? I think it might be. And here's here's a little fun fact about that. I know stats don't, you know, really change people's minds. I get that. But I like them, so you're listening to my podcast, so listen up. <laughs> Labor's annual economic growth during the period when it was in government was 2.6%. The coalition's annual economic growth while it's in government, has been 1.9. Now, even if it recovers in the the economy recovers in inverted commas in the way people expect for the December quarter, i.e., the Christmas bump, it'll only get to two percent. So, growth under Labor was stronger. Don't forget, Labor had the GFC as well. So, it, it's also had a big economic, global economic pressure, all the rest of it. But there are things that governments do that improve or make worse the economic environment in which people operate. That is the conditions in which we make decisions on how we spend our money, right? Like that's all the economic environment is. It's us spending our money. So here are some of the things that have happened. There are 20,000 fewer Commonwealth government employees, but fees paid to global consulting fee companies are up 90% from 1.1 from sorry from 600 million to 1.1 billion dollars wage growth is below inflation because the Morrison government first capped wages and then pegged them at a lower level than the cap petrol prices are up 25% in the last year We do less refining of our own petrol here. We also don't have the infrastructure and haven't put the infrastructure in place for an electric vehicle transition. Our strategic oil reserves are held in another country. There's lots of reasons why petrol prices here are higher than they need to be, and most of them are about policy decisions made. Currently in the US, petrol prices are coming down a little bit because the US has tapped into its strategic oil reserve to bring them down. Wage growth is below inflation because the global supply chains that our economy relies on to give us the things we want and need have been choked off by the pandemic. And you might go, well, that's a pandemic issue, Ben. That's not fair to lay at Morrison's feet. But what do we know, Van? We know that before there was a coalition government in Australia, we used to make cars here. We don't make cars here anymore. All of the supply chain around car making is now offshore. We know that manufacturing has declined under the Morrison government. All of the supply chain that feeds advanced manufacturing is then held offshore. These are government decisions that create an economic environment. So while I know stats don't really change people's minds about things, I think what we're starting to see- They change my mind. <laughs> well, that's great because I, I think we're talk st- about stats. I'm I in. think we're starting to see the the stats reflect the lived experience of people in Australia. What the people think they're getting further and further behind, 
Yeah. Spoiler alert, everybody, it's not in your head. You are getting further and further behind. You are not being paid an, enough money to compensate you for the price rises in the things that you are buying. You are not going mad. You do not have poor economic management skills. You actually have a depletion of one resource while you're confronted with you know, these demands on that resource elsewhere. And and this is the thing. We are the worst economic performer out of the 28 largest economies in the world. That's statement of fact. And so while Morrison wants to spin about recovery and all the rest of it, you know, it is, it's a sort of, it's, you know, I, I don't really like using this term, but it's a sort of like gaslighting. It's like, oh, the economy's doing great. We're recovering. Look at all these new jobs we're creating. 60% of all the jobs that have been rebuilt since the pandemic have been casual or part-time. 60%. So it's disproportionately insecure jobs, disproportionately lower wages, disproportionately more difficult to get the things we want and need. Uh, and it's because of poor decision-making. Morrison's had a choice to make, and every time he's had a choice to make about the economy, he's picked the side of big, often global corporations over everyday working people. And, and now and I use the term show. SPIV economy and SPIV economics yeah. to describe the Morrison economic strategy or Morrisonism. Morrisonism is about giving as much national wealth as possible through the government to corporations. That's actually his whole understanding of economics is based on if I give more money to people who are likely to be Liberal Party donors, maybe that's good for the economy. Like that's really <laughs> as complex as it gets. And I just want people to be aware. Like when I was growing up, I had such a wonderful idea that politicians were really sensible and knew things and had plans. And that's probably because I sort of became politically aware during the Hawke Keating era where those guys did know what they were doing and had plans and understood economics and Keating who was building all these like vast economic projects and had this sort of infinite knowledge of how economies worked. And it's not universally like that. There are a lot of people in politics who have no idea about how to run an economy or what the basic terms are, who don't consider what economic settings are going to be like for working people or, God help us, unemployed people because they don't actually care what happens to those people either. And they're more than happy to go along to get along with every economic recommendation made by, you know, a neoliberal crank at an obscure university publishing pamphlets about how Milton Friedman is Jesus. Like... It is absolutely shocking and ordinary Australians are paying the price. We are three years like behind where we should be economically. We have returned to 2018 levels. Things are not getting better. There is no brighter economic outlook. They're getting worse. Growth is slow and money is being directed to people like corporate consultants in the economy who are the people who need it the least. I mean, Ben talks about economic settings around the public service. The absolute miracle of of wartime and post-war reconstruction in this country was creating, directly creating, government jobs. Like people worked for the gas company and the gas company was owned by the government and people were in services. Like I'm going through this with my mother at the moment about getting her aged care services and the the 
a woman who did mum's assessment today asked me if it was all right to do a broadcast of all the services my mother needs to all of these different private providers that, you know, who will negotiate a price with us on what we can afford and there's some government subsidy there but it doesn't cover all of it. Like once upon a time services from the government were government services where there were like job guarantees and there were public servants who were being paid a fair day's wage for a fair day's work who were part of a stable economic system that could constantly be generating economic activity because these people were being paid by the government to do the work. That has gone. Like neoliberal economics and liberal governments have eroded and eroded and eroded and eroded that whole concept of a public service that does like that provides Things. services. Yeah. Like, and now we are going economically backwards because we have changed the policy setting on who can and can't have a job in the economy and w- which parts of the economy can and can't be stimulated. And it's it's always interesting to me to come back to well, what can government really do about it? You know, you've given some direct examples. Like it used to be the government owned things and it could employ people. Government still owns things. There are one thousand. There are over thirteen hundred government bodies that have boards and that exist. The Department of Finance keeps a record of these. You can go online and check them out if you're really interested. There are 1,300 government bodies that exist that employ people that that obviously have work to do. What's changed is the way the work is done. More and more goes to global consulting firms. You're seeing the entry into things like aged care and the NDIS of global private equity firms. You know, global private equity firms are not interested in your mother getting an outcome. They're interested in what's called an internal rate of return. And at the moment, they're probably demanding, I don't know, 7 to 10% minimum. And if they're a really big firm, they might be asked, they might be demanding 15 to 20. That means that money's got to come from somewhere. And if the government's outsourcing the delivery of the service, it's coming from our tax dollars and it's paying for someone else's profit. So the service gets diminished. Somebody has to – it has to come out of somewhere. It comes out of wages. It comes out of job security. You know, I always come back to – I was talking to somebody the other day um, because we'd both seen somebody tweeted – you know, the government should have just taken over Qantas, should have just nationalised it, kept all the workers and then redeployed them and then brought them back to Qantas when, when they were needed again. Instead, we've given billions of dollars to Alan Joyce who and he's sacked people and outsourced them and cut their wages and acted unlawfully and still the government's giving him more money. And we started talking about, well, what else can government do? And Morrison's choices during the pandemic are so stark on this. You know, JobKeeper didn't have a job guarantee. It was for a very set period of time and it didn't, the the job maker program didn't work because it wasn't actually about creating jobs. Look at what he did with Australia Post. You know, I come back to Australia Post because we're all dealing with the fact that we're not getting our deliveries on time. That's not because the workers are lazy. These workers are working harder than they've ever worked for less money than they've ever worked, right? Their trucks are overloaded. They're unsafe conditions often. And yet Australia Post and Star Trek Express are owned by the government. They are government-owned entities. Scott Morrison could pick up the phone and tell the board of Australia Post, 
look, I'm going to forego the $400 million dividend this year and you're going to put that money into hiring more delivery drivers. Imagine that. That's something tangible and real government can do. Oh, we don't want to interfere and the market will decide. Well, it's just nonsense. It's, it, there's no such thing as a perfect market. They rig it their own way anyway. They might as well be rigging it in the favour of working people. That's that's my two cents on that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth more than two cents. It's just so frustrating. Like, and the the whole outsourcing to global consultancy companies, like it's, it, I mean, we talk about supply chain economics and the thing with consultants is they're even further away from the problem. And it, and that's deliberate. Like it's keep it's bringing in these companies to make decisions about hum, like human re, like human resource capital and as if and quantifying like uh, personnel outcomes and whatever. None of this has to do with they don't even use the language of people. Yeah, they use the language of people as resource units that can be endlessly moved around a board. And part of the reason you use consultants is because the people who are on the the receiving end of those decisions get further and further and further away from the people who make the decisions about them. And it's sickening. Like it's why capital- Ben. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but capitalism is bad. Yeah, capitalism is well, really bad. I think I think the I think the Nordic countries have you know got the balance a bit better. You know, it, there was a stage in human history where it was described as the greatest marriage of human history was between democracy and capitalism. And I got to say, if the way capitalism and democracy are interacting. Uh, and the, under the current Morrison government was to be described, I think it would be described as toxic. Uh, but it doesn't have to be like that, right? It's actually the choices. As you say, people make decisions. People make the decisions about what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And if they make better decisions and they make decisions looking at the impact on people, then actually the economy grows. Mm. Like the economy does better when we think about how people will respond to what we're doing because people actually are the economy. Amazing. People are the economy. That's crazy. You you absolute raging socialist, you. I mean, you Well, I think it's really interesting because the the thing, just before we get to the uh, good news story, I want to talk about elbow firing up in Parliament in this last week. This was a wonderful birthday present to me. So it was my birthday yesterday, everybody, and my present was elbow's performance in Parliament yesterday. (laughs) Because it's – let's talk about elbow because I think if we're talking about how democracy shapes capitalism, there's a number of things that have happened in the last two weeks in the federal parliament that talk about how maybe a change of government can reshape our capitalist economy, right? Um, but Van Albo, as you say, delivered a beautiful, beautiful punch, um, verbal punch on Peter Dutton uh, when <laughs> he Morrison was trying to, you know, misdirect an answer to a question. Albo got up with a point of order, and immediately Peter Dutton jumped up to try and get him to sit down and, you know, get him to be quiet and over talk over the top of him. And uh, what was Albo's response, Van? Well, he said, and I quote, sit down, sit down, sit down, buffhead, sit down. 
and sit down, boofhead, became everybody's favourite line in in Australian politics yesterday. It went absolutely mad. And it was just a moment where Albo, who who has had a reputation since being a young man for speaking his mind, was always very much his brand. And certainly Albo, the attack dog, the deputy prime minister, you know, the I fight Tories, that's what I do guy, that's a, that's a mongrel political persona that I think people really connect with, especially now when Morrison's, you know, flip-flopping at someone else's problem, the country's on fire, I go to Hawaii, I don't hold a hose mate antics, are just so frustrating for people. Like they're frustrating. Even if you're a centre-right person, like you're centre-right and you're one of those people who says things like, oh, socially liberal, economically conservative, <laughs> and you don't like tax and you don't like regulations, you don't like big government, you do like making money. If you were one of those people, People, you would be looking at Scott Morrison going, what are you doing? Like, seriously, what are you doing? GDP is declining to 2018 levels. You know, you haven't managed the restructure of the economy after coronavirus. We still have all this uncertainty about economic planning. Oh, by the way, the Morrison government's only planned for people to turn up to Parliament for, what, 10 minutes next year because they have no legislative agenda. They're not investing in anything like nothing is happening. These are people who are staying in government merely to stay in government and that, by the way, everyone is bad. Yeah, and what you- is happening is total chaos, right? Oh, because The parliament is an absolute zoo. It is got, crazy what's going on there. You've got people at both ends of the sort of, you know, if you if you said centre-right had its own spectrum, at both ends of the centre-right spectrum, the kind of Christensen, Kelly, O'Brien, far right of the centre-right, um, and in some cases possibly just far right, uh, crossing the floor and moving motions around vaccine mandates uh, and, you know, just being ignored the Liberal Party just ignoring that members of their party are voting on things that anti-vaxxers and QAnoners have basically demanded that they move in Parliament. Like I can only imagine what Telegram and Discord servers are like at the moment after that vote happened. Like they'd be, you know, so happy with Christensen and so disappointed in Morrison. And at the other end, you've got Bridget Archer crossing the floor to try and support an independent motion to get a federal ICAC which failed because it was procedural, and then being ambushed by Josh Frydenberg, who was sort of pretending to to be nice. Yeah, yeah, despite the fact she had – he said, I think you should talk to Scott, and she was like, I'm just not in a place to do that right now. I'll do it later. And he was like, well, come with me, and then like literally led her into the lion's den. It's just crazy. Last week we had senators refusing to vote – on their own government's bills unless they got their way on some other piece of random nonsense. And, you know, I think what the elbow, you know, you sit down buffed thing really brought out for me was there is fight in the Labor Party. You know, Shorten was off the leash today questioning cuts to NDIS funding. Like there are people on the NDIS who've had $70,000 cut from their funding after the minister has talked about it being a welfare program and at the same time foreign private equity is buying into it. You know, you've got Dreyfus kicking Morrison on ICAC and, you know, Morrison's trying, oh, but, you know, we've got a model that Labor just won't support and that's why I'm not putting it up for a vote. It's like, mate, you keep putting up religious discrimination stuff that Labor doesn't support because you, you want it. Like, if you want an ICAC, put it up. Make us vote, you know. Elbow drove home the point on quarantine and the lack of a Centre for Disease Control. 
you know, here we are, two years into a pandemic, still no quarantine. You're not saying that quarantine is a Commonwealth responsibility, are you? Oh. You think quarantine is a Commonwealth responsibility, as explained in the Australian Constitution? I think you are, because it was very interesting. I did the Today Show on Monday uh, with uh, David Littleproud, who is the Minister for Agriculture, who tried to blame the lack, the fact we've had two years of global pandemic, and yet we still have no quarantine facilities. He tried to blame that on the states, saying it was the states' fault, and. I was rather convinced, having had a brief glance at the Australian Constitution, that it is a federal responsibility. And I knew this because every time I come back from overseas and I go through um, quarantine at an airport, it's a federal government agency. And I believe you suggested to me the point that in Australia, David Littleproud personally signs off on quarantine facilities for horses that exist, and yet we still don't have them for people. It's just a remarkable point. You know, you're absolutely right. If you're bringing an animal into Australia, there is an entire system set up around quarantine and where the animal goes and when you can go and pick it up and what tests have to be done before it gets there and after it gets there. But two years into a global pandemic, the Commonwealth government simply refuses to acknowledge that it has this responsibility. I don't see how you can say we're responsible for quarantining cats, but when it comes to people the McCure Hotel will do. Like, that is just ridiculous and, again, a poor set of choices by the Morrison government. And I think what we've seen in the last week is Labor hammering home that Morrison does make choices and he just keeps making bad ones, you know, and sit-down Buffett was, you know what, Dutton's making a bad choice. He doesn't have a point of water. He doesn't have a right to get up. Sit down. Sit down and wait your turn. Like uh, I loved it. I just yeah, I was I like, it. I think everybody did. I think it just spoke to the national mood. So a Brisbane artist who goes by the internet name of Nordacious um, contacted me. He tagged me into a post on Facebook saying, "Oh, look, I've made these Albo t-shirts, and they're these pictures of Albo just looking absolutely disgusted at the Tories with the caption, as you can imagine, sit down, buffhead." And I like shared the like I shared the video of Albo on my Facebook page, and I shared the t-shirt and this dude like this artist has had one of the best weeks of his life because thousands <laughs> of people are buying them literal thousands of people are buying these t-shirts because everybody's had enough people want peter dutton to sit down especially after the absolutely extraordinary action that dutton took we haven't spoken about this but dutton recently took a defamation action yeah. to court and sued some random on twitter for a comment that was made. And, I, I, I mean, I just found it extraordinary. This is a man who literally sabre rattles at China. It's like, love, if you're terrified of a tweet on the internet, just wait until you deal with the People's Liberation Army, frankly. <laughs> but it was like he, sued, he took this guy to court and has extracted money from him because he took offence to this tweet. And you can imagine what it's like being me, like feminist <laughs> journalist on the internet. I get... How many of those comments a day? Oh, like a thousand. We yeah. have that joke in our houses. I got a death threat. It must be a day ending in Y. And for years and years and years, Tory magazines, Tory rags, like The Spectator, yeah. have published articles going, oh, feminists just need to learn to toughen up. Feminists want to have an equal playing field with men. Well, they better learn how to, you know, get as good as they give. And, and that's been the tone of the conversation in the ideological quarters that Dutton comes to. And somebody makes one mean comment on the internet and Dutton's in court, bawling his eyes out. And today, and the- I don't know if you saw this, Dutton accused Anthony Albanese of having a glass jaw. 
It's like, mate, I think the jaw's made of mirror and I think it's attached to your face. Yeah, I think so because, you know, not only did he, you know, take him to court, then, of course, we've had the the announcement with no deliverable on uh, on he's going to fix trolling. You know, it, it won't. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Didn't want to it's fix more, trolling when people were threatening know, to kill them on phone every five minutes. Yeah. But, oh no, no, they'll fix trolling now. Very, very quickly, very quickly. We have to have a short episode this this week. You've got more media commitments, um, probably than Morrison does at the moment. Hey. So very quickly, what is what is the good news for this week? Jag was in Mexico, Ben. So Jaguars in Mexico. Yeah, so Jaguars, the beautiful, beautiful big cat, the Jaguar, is a bit of a, you know, it's an, um, it's a passionate national symbol of Mexico. It is a beautiful animal. But it more than that, um, it's an umbrella species. So Jaguars are these big, powerful predators, and if they're under threat, it means entire ecosystems are under threat. And if you can save the Jaguar, you can save a lot of other things as well. Obviously, Mexico has problems with land clearing and habitat destruction and all kinds of other problems. But because they are this really powerful and potent symbol of, you know, the Mexican imagination, Mm. um, the government decided to do something about it and a team of ecologists went out into um, all of these areas where jaguars lived, they tagged them, they charted them, they studied them, they spotted them, they did all the stuff they had to do. And they asked the question, like, why are the why is the population in decline? What are the actual things we can do on the ground? They used like a four-part strategy, which was where they thought about um, they didn't just think about in terms of conservation. They talk. They talked about public policy, and they also talked about protection. And you know, like it was an intersected approach to protection so they did things like because cattle farmers were killing them because they were preying on cattle so they recommended a public policy change because governments can change things where anybody who lost cattle would be compensated by the government um, rather than shoot the jaguar we'll pay you for the dead cattle and the ecologists worked with farmers to put up electric fences and create uh, wildlife corridors and they lobbied the government to create um, expanded national parks. So Jaguars actually yeah. had the area to range in and things like that. And this started in 2010 and yeah. and they've now increased the Jaguar population by 800, which Fantastic. is enormous for a, for a species that's on the um, the the threatened list, that is absolutely fantastic. But they've done it without displacing people. They've literally worked with communities because most people, when they get down to it, don't want to shoot a beautiful animal in the face. They don't yeah. want a forest to die. They don't want to trash the environment. So working on the ground with those people and having a channel to government to talk about public policy solutions is saving the Mexican jaguar. Fantastic news. That is all we have time for this week. I know there's a lot of other news that's happened. I know Christian Porter has announced that he won't be standing again at the next federal election. So has Greg Hunt. Greg Hunt's out. Greg Hunt will be out as well. We will get into those stories either on the weekend wrap or next week's episode because there's a lot in that to unpack and maybe I think we're going to do a special uh, end-of-year pre-election episode Uh, because there's so much that we have to really get our heads around. But thank you to everyone for listening. Congratulations to everyone who's reached out and said they've joined their union, got active in their union. I know some people who have banded together and actually gone and seen their boss after listening to The Week on Wednesday. I've had activists come up to me recently and now that we talk to each other in person uh, and say that they've been talking to people about The Week on Wednesday and it's helped them because it's just an hour have a listen. So please do share. 
do like, do comment. The more you like, the more you comment, the more people will get to see the week on Wednesday. And we love it when you engage, when you send us questions, when you ask for clarity on things, because that gives us an understanding of where the gaps in people's knowledge are and we can engage with that. And we live for the feedback. We really love it. So thank you so much. And don't forget to tune in to The Weekend Wrap on Sunday afternoon with me. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. You're the best. Bye. Bye.